Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. From the numbers, the cybersecurity workforce appears to be in a perpetual crisis. For years, the number of qualified cybersecurity personnel available has lagged behind the government's open positions, and that gap is growing. The White House, federal agencies, and other organizations have committed to getting after the shortfalls. That makes 2024 a crucial year. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. And Justin, the workforce challenge, the cyber workforce challenge is something not new for this time. What is the Biden administration planning to do in the coming year to take care of it or to get after it? Over the summer, the White House released this landmark cyber workforce and education strategy that really lays out some big goals for increasing cyber skills across the nation, for increasing the number of people who are are, are available for cybersecurity positions, and then for strengthening the federal cyber workforce specifically. And one of the big things the Biden administration wants to do is make the government a leader in adopting skills-based hiring. And that kind of shifts away from using obscure occupational classification series for jobs that require specific four-year degrees and certifications. And actually, you know, evaluating people in the job hiring process for what their skills actually are. So the White House has said it secured more than $280 million in funding from different organizations to carry out this strategy. And next year, we'll have to see what they're going to do to actually implement it. We understand from several sources that the Office of the National Cyber Director is putting together an implementation plan. So that's something to look out for in the new year. And in the meantime, the skills-based hiring gambit has been going on for a little while now. Have any agencies had progress or success in switching over from, like you say, those obscure job descriptions to actually, yeah, do you know how to stop a log4j attack? Right. Yeah. Well, it's really agency by agency so far. I mean, the Office of Personnel Management has released a lot of guidance on skills-based hiring over the last year or so. There's been different cybersecurity assessments that have popped up at different agencies. DHS, for instance, is using a what it calls a multi-hurdle assessment process to evaluate candidates for IT positions specifically. But there are a lot of other agencies who haven't adopted these practices yet. And that's where OPM and the Office of Management and Budget and the Office of the National Cyber Director want to go is they want, you know, human resources offices across the federal government to be using these skills based assessments. So that's something that agencies and the White House will need to work on in 2024. And what about legislation? What about Congress? This is of interest to some members of Congress, those with technology in their districts, those with lots of federal employees or agencies in their districts, anything they can do to help. Well, the Office of Personnel Management has actually come out and said they are working with Congress on a cyber workforce proposal. And what this would do would take some of the current specialized hiring authorities like the Defense Department's Cyber Accepted Service and the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Talent Management System and stretch a system like those systems across the entire civilian executive branch. For job seekers, that could mean higher cyber pay, more flexible bonuses, 
for agencies that could be an accepted service that allows them to more easily do these skills-based assessments. But one big challenge for any piece of legislation in 2024 is that it's a presidential election year. And folks I talked to really raised a lot of questions about whether there will be enough time and consensus on the OPM proposal to get it through a divided Congress in a presidential election year. So that's something that we'll be tracking closely in 2024 when this OPM proposal does come out. So people feel in Congress, if it comes from the other side, it's like the creature from the Black Lagoon. They don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. And to be fair, cyber is one of the few areas where there is still bipartisan consensus. But of course, this brings in personnel policy, too, which then gets a little partisan again. So there will be some tough conversations, to say the least. And on the issue of higher than standard salaries, there are authorities that certain agents have agencies have to be able to hire above the GS schedule, and several of them have used those authorities and gotten appropriations to cover them. You know, it's not giant dollars, but it can be tens of millions, you know, for a cyber staff. And what else can agencies do? Does that catching on? And could that spread in the coming year to more agencies getting special authorities? Well, again, it's complicated. Uh, You know, we've reported on the special salary rate for IT employees, which includes cyber positions that was approved by OPM. And the VA, the Veterans Affairs, has implemented that special salary rate using funding it got through the PACT Act. But recently, uh, our colleague Jason Miller reported that OMB told the agencies there won't be additional funding in their budget plans to implement that special salary rate for their IC employees. OMB reportedly told agencies to focus on specific job series where they're struggling or have a high priority. So the big question next year is, how will agencies find the funding to implement the special salary rate, if at all? And if they do how will they target that funding? Because it seems like it won't apply across the entire IT series. Yeah. So you're back to selling the mission and hoping that that's what people want to do for a couple of years anyway. I guess if they can get people for temporarily, that's better than having nobody. Is there anything else the Biden administration has, anything an agency has in the toolbox after you get to the skills-based hiring, special authorities? What about fast-tracking people even if it's at the same pay, not making them wait four or five, six months till the government makes a higher decision. Yeah, well, one big thing to watch on that front is this idea of a federal cyber workforce development institute. This was included in that cyber workforce and education strategy that we talked about earlier. It would provide training to new uh, new hires in the federal cybersecurity field. So potentially while they wait for their security clearance, they could go do some training at this development institute. It would also potentially provide some mid-career training to folks who get to that point where they're looking to level up beyond kind of being in having that initial knowledge. And then importantly, it would also train HR professionals on the specific hiring techniques and authorities for cyber positions, things that we've talked about like special salary rates and skills-based hiring. Those HR professionals need to know about. So White House officials have recently said they are working with Congress on legislation to establish that institute. So that's something to watch going forward as well. And what about people staying trained? If you hire someone for their skills, cybersecurity requirements are always changing. The threats always change. The technologies always change. And you've got this 
open source on this one hand. You've got homegrown software on the other hand, contracted software. I mean, it's not one thing that people have to do. Do agencies, and should they generally have a plan to, if they hire someone with certain skills, make sure the skills stay current as the needs change? Yeah, I think that's, you know, the idea behind the institute we talked about. But, you know, that also requires agencies to set aside time for their people to, you know, pull them off the off the mission, off the desktop and or, or laptop or whatever, and go do that training. And, uh, you know, that's that's obviously something that each agency has to approve for their people. So that's been a big issue with the federal cyber workforce is people get a certain amount of experience and then they look to go get more in the private sector in addition to more money in the private sector. So can the federal government beyond just pay provide a reason for people to stick around going forward? Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we know you're going to be covering that much more ahead. You can find all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.